Welcome home. From Simmons Radio, The Shark, and The Simmons Voice, this is Welcome Home, a show about news, culture, and stories that impact Simmons University. No matter where you are, we'll keep you updated on what's happening at home. Welcome back to Welcome Home, a weekly podcast by Simmons Radio, The Shark, and The Simmons Voice. My name is Sarah Carlin. I use she, her pronouns. My name is Katie Cole. I use she, her pronouns. My name is Abby Vervak. I also use she, her pronouns. My name is Izan Delicado, and I use they or she pronouns. So thank you so much for tuning in. We've got a really great episode for you guys this week. So as Thanksgiving is this week, um, Abby has a story on how COVID is impacting Thanksgiving this year. Abby, do you want to take it away? It's that time of year again, the holiday season, filled with traditions, food, family, and friends. But with COVID-19 cases climbing throughout the United States, Thanksgiving is going to look a bit different this year. I spoke with a few different Simmons students about how their plans for Thanksgiving have changed thanks to the pandemic. Amanda Brown, a third-year student from Maine, told me her family has canceled Thanksgiving altogether this year. Until a few weeks ago, Brown says she was planning to celebrate with her mom, her three siblings, and their partners in Maine. Once cases started to spike, they decided it was too dangerous, especially considering her brother's partner is pregnant. I also spoke with Celine Brenton, a fourth-year student from Connecticut. She's living off-campus in an apartment in Boston right now so that she can complete her thesis research in the labs on campus. At the start of the semester, her family was afraid that she would put them in danger by returning home for the holidays. But now, with cases more widespread, they're actually afraid of infecting her. They're still thinking of holding some sort of outdoor bonfire celebration this Thanksgiving. Juliana Fernandez is also living in Boston. She's a resident advisor on campus and is required to move out this week as campus is closing for the remainder of the semester and winter break. Fernandez will fly to Denver after she moves out and will start quarantining for two weeks after she arrives. Her family will not celebrate Thanksgiving until December after her quarantine is complete. Fernandez is just one of the many college students returning home this week, and experts say all that travel could potentially worsen the pandemic for the U.S. Axios and Generation Lab conducted a poll of college students returning home and found that only 22% of college students plan to quarantine for two weeks after they arrive home for the holidays, and 24% plan to take no precautionary measures at all. To learn about how this and the Thanksgiving celebrations could worsen the pandemic, I spoke with Harvard Public Health Infectious Disease Research Fellow Stephen Kistler. Kistler told me that he was concerned about college students traveling for Thanksgiving and that universities should provide students with the resources they need to prevent the spread of COVID-19 to their families and friends. He said students traveling home should consider quarantining for two weeks prior to travel, but with Thanksgiving just a few days away now, it's too late for that. Students can still get a test before they travel, though. The guidance that the Simmons Health Center sent to students reflected the recommendations of Kistler, but didn't necessarily line up with the timing of campus closing. Guidance from the Health Center was emailed to students living on campus on November 19th, just one week before Thanksgiving. It recommended that students reduce their contact prior to traveling and delay their travel if they feel ill, 
but it's unclear where a student who felt ill would go if they delayed their travel, considering that campus is closing on the 24th. Even if students weren't traveling, Kistler tells me he expects the holidays to cause a spike in cases. The holidays, especially Thanksgiving, are usually super spreader events for illnesses like the flu. Abby, thank you so much for reporting on that. I know my Thanksgiving plans personally have changed. I was supposed to go have Thanksgiving at my dad's house in Massachusetts and spend it with my grandma, but that cannot happen this year, especially as COVID cases are rising across the country. So instead, I am going to be staying in Connecticut with my mom and my sister. I am going to be having a household-only Thanksgiving this year. Yeah, Katie, a similar thing has happened to me. My family lives in Georgia and I live in D.C. And so I will not be traveling to Georgia to celebrate Thanksgiving with them this year. And instead, I'm just going to stay here in D.C. I'm lucky that my sister lives here, so I'm going to spend the day with her. And she cooks our Thanksgiving dinner anyway for our family, so I'm still getting the food, uh, which is lucky on my part. Um, Kind of along the same vein as everyone else, I am living in Western Mass right now, um, and my family is from Cape Cod, so I cannot go home for Thanksgiving this year. I don't think I was um, planning on it really anyways. Both of my parents uh, teach, so they're, you know, around kids, and it would be basically impossible for me to quarantine (laughs) effectively um, for going there and coming back. So my roommate and I, we are uh, pod, we pod with her parents. So we're going to go to her parents' house for Thanksgiving, um, which I am very, very excited about. And I'm going to make a couple delicious dishes and I can't wait. Sarah's first gluten-free Thanksgiving. Very exciting. I know. I, feel like I, have to, I have to plan a little bit, but I'm hoping I'm hoping to make it a good one. If you need any any recipes, let me know. This year for Thanksgiving, my plans are kind of all over the place. I'm not really sure what the heck is going on, but back to the gluten-free thing, I will be making a pie or eating a pie or doing something, kind of um, figuring out a stuffing recipe. That's what it's called. And I will not I will be patient when making the gravy because last year I put too much cornstarch in because it wasn't thickening and then I it cooled and I tried pouring it onto my plate and it was like jello. So I will not be doing that this year because that was horrendous. And I just kind of want to I think it's really important to talk about this how Thanksgiving is a holiday of pain for a lot of people. Um for so many different reasons, whether they are food insecure or don't have a family necessarily or a safe family situation. And then also um, a very complex day for Indigenous people. As I know, at least I grew up with with these falsified stories of the story of Thanksgiving. I think it's really important to recognize and think about that. And now uh, take a listen to Maddie Horn's piece. Hi, y'all. Maddie Horn here. Let me start by saying how perfectly ironic I find it that Native American Heritage Day falls immediately after Thanksgiving Day, or Truthsgiving, as I call it. So with that being said, I will kindly just go off. Every day is Native Day, Indigenous Peoples Day, so on and so forth to me, because my existence is resistance. I'm a citizen of the Cherokee Nation, And I promise I am not one of those white people that thinks they are Cherokee. (laughs) 
They always think they're Cherokee, not any of the other 573 federally recognized Indian nations. There's so much nuance about what it means to be Native too, especially because of the reality of being asked, well, how Native are you? What does that even mean? (laughs) Do you mean how much of your preconceived idea do I personify? Or what percentage I am? Do I have a citizenship card? Back in the day, not saying that we've come all that far, but a drop of black blood made you black. But it's like a drop of white blood makes you white when you're indigenous. So colonizers use race in a funny way as a construct and gender and socioeconomic class and so on to divide us. And I say native, not Native American when referring to myself very intentionally. I refuse to assimilate any more than I've already had to. I would rather be called an Indian or brace yourself a redskin before I was called Native American, but that's just me. And there are people, indigenous or not, who might find that appalling, which is fair, because how we humanize ourselves when blood quantums seek to do otherwise, considering the only other forms the U.S. government monitors them for are those of dogs and horses, how we find our place in this world is deeply individual. So if it's appalling to a person who is native, that's fair. If you're not, then I don't care. (laughs) And people ask me the most respectful term to refer to native folks as, I'm no gatekeeper, and I can't offer the reassurance that you're looking for or the answer that you're looking for because there isn't one. And that is an ugly consequence of colonialism you have to deal with. That's the truth, and it offends people. People also get offended with how I own my heritage and honor my ancestry because it doesn't fit their imagination or their narrative. Sorry, dude. I'm real. (laughs) Many Cherokees embrace a mix of both modern and traditional aspects of our culture, And there is no universally agreed upon way to express Cherokee culture or to be Cherokee, quite frankly. And this is the case for basically every other tribe (laughs) because we're open-minded, so much more open-minded than Western thinking. And it's so colonial to think that there is just one right mode of living and being. So for example, I've taken to wearing two braids. Each strand still represents mind, body, and soul to me. I absorb the energy of whoever is braiding my hair, but I just do two little ones. So not all of my hair is in them, like traditionally it might be, and I just keep the rest of my hair down. That's a perfect example of how modern and traditional practices come together and we make them our own. But my hairstyle baffles people sometimes. And that's just what I've been doing recently. Who knows what it will be like a year from now. I will say one wrong thing to do, if you must know, (laughs) is to talk about indigenous people and practices in the past tense as if we're gone. We're still here and our cultures are alive and well and evolving, even in the face of Thanksgiving Day. And there's simultaneous erasure and appropriation going on too in terms of my existence. I just want you to think about slippers that look like moccasins. You might own a pair. Dreamcatcher tattoos, 
dubstep dances, burning sage, sports teams revolving around stereotypes that supposedly honor us. Don't get started with me about Halloween costumes with headdresses. I digress. (laughs) Now I'm just going to leave you with some native proverbs that I've come up with. We're the custodians of Mother Earth. Columbus didn't discover anything. Thanksgiving is a celebration of genocide that romanticizes the death and disease and violence pilgrims brought to these lands. Vulnerability is brave. Your stories are sacred. We are nothing without each other. No one is illegal on stolen land. Black liberation and indigenous sovereignty go hand in hand. Empathy is rebellious. Decolonize your mind, heart, and soul. That might be a lot for some of y'all to sit with, but boom, I said what I said. So, done a doggo on me, or until we meet again. Huge thanks to Maddie for that piece. Um, As we talked about, I think it's just really important to keep in mind that Thanksgiving is complex for so many people. Um, Again, keeping in mind Indigenous folks. So, Iz, you had a very exciting um, interview last week, didn't you? Do you want to tell us a little bit about it? I sure did, Sarah. Thank you so much. It was an honor and a super exciting experience to interview 21-year-old English singer, songwriter, and musician Declan McKenna. The interview focused around his sophomore album, Zeros, which was released on September 4th, but wrapped up recording in August of 2019. So it's been an entire year. And so much of this album kind of talks about themes of the end of the world and climate change and dystopia and data mining and conspiracy theories. So all of these things that Declan wrote about and recorded and finished producing a year ago has taken on so much new meaning with the political climate that we're in and just kind of the way the world is going with the pandemic and all. And we also talked about kind of his perspective on this as someone who is not American. He is from England. As I said, he is English. Um, So we talked about that and we got kind of real about gender identity and fluidity and touched on how religion can kind of play a role in that. So here are just a few clips from the interview. You can check out the Voice is website to read the article and hear an unedited version of the interview. Climate change, industrialism, dystopia, conspiracy theories, etc. are all thought-provoking and often heavy themes that have seemed to be taking the forefront of people's minds amidst political and social unrest and a global pandemic. But for 21-year-old singer-songwriter and musician Declan McKenna, ruminating such themes and topics is really nothing new. At only 15, the singer's debut single, Brazil, was beyond its years with the wisdom and maturity regarding corruption and offered a political critique and analysis of FIFA. This wisdom was carried into his first studio album, What Do You Think About the Car?, where McKenna also showed himself straying from gender norms, complete with eye makeup on the album cover, and wearing flowing dresses for performances on stage. The intellectual depth that McKenna just naturally delivers in such a poetic way again was carried into his next project, his sophomore album Zeros, which dropped on September 4th of this year. The entire project has taken on such greater life and greater meaning when contextualized with the current state of the world. How are you, Declan? Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Yeah, no worries. So where are you joining me from right now? 
Uh, I'm in northwest London at the minute, so living in London. McKenna is sitting on his bed wearing a black t-shirt with the cuffs rolled up. His once pristine mullet, which we can see in the various music videos for songs off the album, is growing out and a bit disheveled, but in a good way. The wooden headboard and casually striped bedspread are a stark contrast to the glam rock outfits, glittery makeup, and fantasy green screen clips from music videos. Nonetheless, his silly, confident demeanor is exactly the same, and what he's telling me in our interview mirrors the wisdom and eloquence of the themes covered in the 10-track album. Again, some of which themes are quite heavy with undertones of the end of the world and pointed messages and critiques of the state of the world itself. The album was completed in August of 2019. Long before the pandemic and the major political and social unrest, which has grasped the world, making the urgency and doom of the messages throughout the album feel much stronger. A track that comes to mind specifically about this is Daniel, You're Still a Child, which, according to McKenna, via the Apple album notes, deals with the concept of people who are misunderstood and consequently pushed further and further away into dark corners. You know, the immersiveness of all of that this year... um, just feels more intense. It feels like I was kind of hinting at when thinking about conspiracies, you know, going into the album, I was thinking about dark corners of the internet that can be very, very dark, you know. Um, but a lot of the time, fairly arbitrary, fairly, you know, harmless in the grand, non-mainstream. And yet, I think with Trump's presidency leading up to now and then the last, these last couple of months as, as you know, being as you know, everyone's been kind of so immersed in social media and, and things. Um, it's become a lot more threatening and like those dark corners just feel a little darker and feel a little more mainstream as well. And um, when it comes to conspiracies and things, I was thinking about that a lot and, the, you know, the future of it. And I feel like it feels like the future is here because it's just towing the line between real and fake is so difficult now. And um, yeah, it's been it's been interesting seeing that all pan out, and it does seem to relate to those songs. Awesome, thank you so much. And then, kind of again, going off of that, um, with the end of the world themes are being really super strong in this album. Do you have hope for a brighter future and for for some of these issues to be addressed? Yeah, I, I don't think we're going to have a choice. Like, uh, it's hard to say how things are going to pan out. It's hard to really believe in anything if you if you're not hopeful in some way um and you know i think there's a lot of desire in you know younger generations that are going to shift the world over over the course of the next few years and um you know where there seems to be stuff getting darker there are there are movements against and just uh, you know hopefully if we can sort of post trump reunify some element of truth to the world like some element of you know i don't know not politicizing the environment and not you know not making that a partisan issue you know unifying the world on like a task that we can deal with together and put everything else aside for because for the good of the future of humanity like it just feels like a no-brainer but there still is just a disparity in people's truths that is getting in the way of that and i think hopefully yeah, the the world over the next few years. I, I don't know how much I believe what I'm saying, but like hopefully it does, you know, evolve into something a little bit closer to that. In our interview, we went on to talk a little bit more about religious imagery, the album being fully recorded in a studio that used to be a church, and the freedom and fun of gender expression, 
influences and being able to let go a little bit once out of secondary school. You can hear this all in the full interview, which will be posted to The Voice later this week. Yeah, <laughs> I hope you have a nice day and all that. Thank you, you too. Sweet. Good. Bye. For Simmons Radio The Shark and The Simmons Voice, my name is Isn Delicato. Is that was incredible. I'm so excited that you were able to interview Declan. I am such a big fan of Declan. His song Brazil is like the biggest summer bop of all time, possibly. Literally so, so good. Younger me is is screaming. And I just, I don't know how to navigate being like an arts and entertainment journalist because it's like, oh, I admire you as an artist, but also I want to be your friend. Can we, I'm not sure if we can add this into the podcast because because it's publicist and maybe he will even listen to this. But um, if it's okay to say, then Declan, if you're listening, I would really like to be your friend. You are a sweetheart and I want Declan, to pick your brain if, all day. Declan, if you're free on Thursday, let's hang out on Thursday when I'm free. Let me know. So if anyone um, has talked to me for more than 10 minutes, they'll know how much I love and appreciate the Simmons University archives. Um, I think that it is such an important part of any university. And I think that students a lot of times aren't aware that um, you can literally just go into the archives and ask to look for stuff. And our two archivists, Jason Wood and Lauren Loftus, are amazing, um, incredible people. Um, Basically, an archives is where all of the history of uh, the university is stored. So anything and everything is in there, you know, from uh, big administration things like president's papers or, um, you know, board of trustee minutes for from, you know, the way beginning, photographs, um, all that stuff. But also uh, you can, if, if you like is, you could donate your personal papers to the Simmons University archives if you wanted to. There could be an is and Delicato uh, collection. I believe... Um, Katie had a very interesting conversation with uh, Jason Wood, who is the head archivist at Simmons, about um, one of the first presidents of Simmons, Bancroft Beatley. Katie, would you like to talk a little bit about that? Yes. So I had heard a rumor from someone, not going to name names, Sarah Carlin, um, that Bancroft Beatley was a eugenicist. And I was thinking about this for a while. And I recently heard a piece on NPR about how a lot of schools are getting rid of the names of eugenicists from their buildings, because apparently there's a big, long history in universities of accidentally naming their buildings off of, or naming their buildings after eugenicists. So I was thinking about it and thinking about how our library carries the name of Bancroft Beatley. It's called Beatley Library. So I figured to get to the bottom of this, I would reach out to Jason Wood. And we talked about um, this rumor and how it got started. So let's take a listen. So I heard a rumor that Bancroft Beatley, who was, I believe, our second president, was he our second president? Um, uh, yes, Bancroft Beatley was the second president. He uh, joined Simmons in 1933. I heard a rumor that he was a eugenicist. Can you tell me a little bit about how that rumor got started? Sure. Uh, how the rumor got started, I think it, it, it was kind of a confluence. and I'm probably the root of the rumor, depending upon where you heard it from. If you heard it from Sarah Carlin, for instance, 
um, that would be uh, sort of one one route where it would have come from me. And uh, obviously, I've never met Bancroft Beatley. He uh, was interviewed by a previous archivist um, uh, back in the 70s, and he since passed away. But uh, an administrator at Simmons was visiting the MIT Museum. And uh, while there, he came across something called the Beatley IQ slide rule. It, uh, it's, it's sort of an evidence of some dubious science, but is not necessarily uh, evidence of eugenic, eugenicist thinking. It's an unusual single purpose device for determining intelligence, given the uh, physical age and the mental age, which apparently was determined by a standardized test. It is, um, you know, today we would view it as basically bunk. But if you put yourself in the context of 1920s, it has... Uh, a particular allure of being able to determine something that was heretofore unable to be kind of uh, quantified. So I was like, oh, that's kind of gross. Um, was my was my first immediate visceral reaction. Um, so then I kind of put that in the back of my mind and uh, came across some books in the library about the science of eugenics, which were which had nameplates dedicated to Clara Bancroft Beatley. And I was like, oh, that's even weirder, but okay. Uh, so I sort of put these two facts together and I, I and I was like, oh, Sarah, this would be an interesting thing for you to possibly dig into. Um, so I think I'm probably the root. Anyway, so fast forward to when we were renovating Beatley Library uh, or the Simmons University Library. And uh, Simmons University Library was named for Bancroft Beatley back in the 1960s. Bancroft retired from the presidency in 1955, and the Board of Trustees and the Alumni Association set up a Beatley Library Fund where folks could donate money in his honor to, to name the, the soon-to-be-constructed library. So when we were in the process of looking at renovation plans, et cetera, it was kind of discussed between myself and uh, the library director and some folks in the provost's office around whether or not it would be appropriate to distance ourselves to, to wipe Bancroft Beatley's name from the library. And uh, it was sort of driven by kind of three different factors, I guess. The first being the potential of him having uh, sort of beliefs which we would find uh, 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 antithetical to Simmons's community commitments. Uh, the second would be uh, no one really knew the distinction between Beatley Library and Lefevre Hall and the University Library. So that was always confusing for everybody. And the third being on a kind of crass way, if there might be a philanthropy donor opportunity where uh, a wealthy alum might want to name the university in their honor or in tribute to someone else. And I thought this would be a great fundraising opportunity for the university. So I dug deeper into the historical records around particularly the first and third points, uh, Bancroft's belief system and whether it was consistent with our values and also what arrangements or kind of uh, promises were made to uh, the Beatley family and the Beatley name when the uh, library was named in his honor. So the second point was whether or not Bancroft Beatley was a eugenicist. So. Um, like I said, I did a really deep dive into looking at the history of the Beakley IQ slide rule. Um, and I found it was very much a construct of 1922. 
It was uh, a, a project that he developed and patented while he was in his graduate studies and or copyrighted rather. And it was never mass produced or marketed. It was just kind of a, of a test item. And from all the reading I did, it was evidence of dubious science more than any particular kind of uh, leaning into eugenics or racist thinking. So just to further satisfy my curiosity, I went through his uh, personal papers that we have in the archives, both his manuscript collection, as well as sort of the speeches he gave whilst president, um, just to see if there was anything in there that might strike me as tonally off. And this was actually a very illuminating uh, sort of exploration into Bancroft Beatley. He was there from 33 to 55. And this is all before Brown versus the Board of Education. Uh, there was Jim Crow era thinking occurring at the time. Uh, the Civil Rights Act had it been passed. You know, this is all pre-60s in the civil rights movement. However, in the 1940s, he did give some very impassioned speeches um, defending the rights of what were termed as minorities at the time, um, certainly persons of color, we could understand it, against sort of cultural forces of suppression or silencing. So there was actually anti-racist thinking going on in Bancroft Beatley. And so much so that we actually updated our Black History exhibit for the era the Bancroft Beatley was here to incorporate some of his thinking just to, to demonstrate. That said, on the other hand, uh, his mother, Clara Bancroft Beatley, um, it appears that she was, to some degree, a, a, a supporter of, the, of what was then considered a science of eugenics. Um, and she was actually a lecturer at the School of Eugenics in Boston um, in at least the year 1912 to 1913. So that her presence on that school's faculty sort of... Uh, I mean, that would help inform some of the books that were donated to the library with her name in the book plate, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know precisely what bent her leaning into eugenics took. Um, there were different, different breeds of it, if you will, back in the first half of the 20th century. Um, some were just quack science and some had much more of a, uh, of a, of a supremacist, racially supremacist tone to it but I don't know what her thinkings were, but I am pleased to say that Bancroft did not share them um, anything beyond sort of the quack science of his 1922 slide rule. Right, well, that's good to hear that he didn't share any of those um, views. Does Simmons still have the books um, with the nameplates from Clara Beatley? Uh, they, we just discovered them last winter, I believe, and we removed them from the library's circulating collection. And right now they are in a box stored up in the archives. Uh, this literally happened in February, I think. Uh, we've changed the location so they're not circulating. And when I'm able to be on campus, I'm gonna take a closer look at them and see if they are appropriate for a collection. I have a weird question. Um, so if they're out of circulation, does that mean that they're just not as easily available, but if someone like had an interest in them, that they could read them? I can answer that. Um, it means that they are not, um, they will not show up if you search the library catalog, but if you're in the know, um, you can ask Jason and I, it's up to his discretion, uh, whether he can show them or not, but I'm pretty sure he, he would. 
um, just under the understanding that, you know, it, this is an ongoing investigation, I guess. I will also say um, the it's it's a really like fine line to walk because the president, uh, President Lefevre, who the Lefevre building is named after, he was president um, in the 19 teens and I believe into the 30s. He was president for a really long time. Um, he was incredibly anti-suffrage for women. He had a very strong stance against um, yeah, women's suffrage. Um, plugging my exhibit. I worked on the exhibit about Simmons and suffrage this past year. Um, but so it's, it's kind of hard, you know, to, to, this is why history is so important, right? Because like you, you really have to be thinking critically about this kind of stuff, um, and constantly re-examining the past and, trying to do better in the future, I guess. Um, but yeah, that's a little, another little interesting tidbit. You know, do we take LaFaver's name off because he didn't think women should vote at a women-centered college? Has that been discussed, the possibility of his name being? No, that, no, that was just me just saying that. Um, I, I'm not aware of any conversation that that has happened with, but um, yeah, definitely, definitely much to think about. That was so awesome, Katie. Thank you so much. Again, as as Sarah said, and I feel like kind of as we've all picked up from this piece and just kind of in our discussions, how important university archivists are. And on that note, I just want to say a huge thank you to Jason Wood and for all of his time and for helping us a lot lately with different stories. And you can help out the archives too, as we're not on campus because of the pandemic it's kind of hard to pick up the student vibe and how things are going for students. So please feel free to email the university archives and send them your stories and experiences with the pandemic because who knows, maybe however many years from now, um, folks will be making a podcast and they'll be talking about talking about what you did for quarantine. So feel free to send your stories and experiences. I'm not exactly sure what they're looking for. So just reach out to archives at simmons.edu via email and tell them that that Welcome Home sent you. So another important aspect of the university experience is not only the history and what goes on while you're in university, but what happens after, namely when you get out of college and you have to start paying off your loans. So because of the COVID-19 pandemic, a lot of people aren't being able to find jobs. Um, there are hiring freezes at a lot of different companies. It's really challenging. So Abby has brought us a story about what it means to default on your loans, not pay your loans, and what happens therein. Six months have passed since the class of 2020 graduated from Simmons meaning that the time has now come for many recent grads to start paying back their student loans. Although the Department of Education suspended federal student loan debt payments as a part of the CARES Act in March, payments are currently expected to resume in January. With a looming recession and no clear end of the pandemic in sight, some recent grads are concerned about their ability to pay back their loans. To get a sense of how some recent grads are doing, I spoke with Mackenzie Farkas, a Simmons alum and former editor-in-chief of The Simmons Voice. She described to me how her student loans could impact many aspects of her life. Very thankful for the, like, the extension of, um, like, public loan payment. However, I'm not sure how I'm going to be able to pay for my loans. Um, I'm very lucky that I got a lot of scholarships while at Simmons, 
So my loan rate or like my, the amount of loans I had to take out definitely is a lot smaller than what other people have had to take out, but it's still not a great amount. I'm not being paid that much at my current job, which is only part-time and it's contract. Um, I'd like to move out of my parents' house at some point. Um, yeah, I've got, like, I've got bills to pay, so I'm going to assume that I'm going to be in debt for quite a bit of time. Now that Farkas is getting ready to pay back her loans, she said she wishes Simmons did more to help her prepare for repayment. I don't really think that Simmons prepared me personally for how I would pay back my student loans. I know that um, they have, what, the Simmons Experience course. Um, I really can't remember student loan payment coming up at any point. Um, then again, that all seems very far away from where I am right now, but I'm really struggling to remember any kind of talk about paying student loans back, um, like different resources you could use, um, to like get money to pay back student loans or postpone those loans. Amy Staffier, the director of student financial services, says her office has made strides since she started at Simmons in 2018 to improve students' preparedness for repayment before they leave Simmons. Through partnership with Inceptia, a nonprofit that provides assistance in understanding information, tools, and resources on student loans, students receive letters twice a year about their loans. In the future, Staffier says she would like to offer more in-person exit counseling to students before they graduate. Although there are a lot of tools and resources on student loans available online, Staffier says it's easy to read a lot of the material without actually absorbing it. She also told me that sometimes recent grads have a looming fear of their loans and as a result, they pull back instead of asking for help. But instead of avoiding loan repayments, Staffier told me that grads should get familiar with their debt so they understand what types of repayment options they have. She recommends that they reach out to their lenders directly if they have private loans. If borrowers don't make loan payments in time, there could be consequences for both the borrower and the university. When a borrower is more than 270 days late in making a payment, they default on their loans. For the borrower, defaulting on your loans can really hurt your credit score. Schools that have an average default rate of about 30% for three straight years are subject to losing eligibility for the Federal Direct Loan Program and possibly also the Federal Pell Grant Program. The most recent federal loan default rate available for Simmons is from 2017, and it's about 2%. Simmons' rate was below that of all of the other colleges of the Fenway and some other neighboring schools like Northeastern University and Emerson College. It was slightly higher than schools like Boston University. Thank you so much for reporting on that, Abby. I think it's a really, really important story that um, definitely should be talked about. Um, and it's it's kind of heartening that Simmons's default rate is so low. Um, but yeah, now switching positions into something a little lighter. Ooh. Here, <laughs> here is Carmen Shreve with the review for Ariana Grande's new album, Positions. Check it out. 
While the past several months may have some feeling hopeless about missed opportunities due to stay-at-home orders, pop star Ariana Grande used the extra time to her advantage to create her sixth album, Positions, which she released on Friday, October 30th. This album has a different tone from her mournful fifth album, Thank You Next, which she released in 2019. Positions brings out a lighthearted, playful, and highly sexual spirit that we haven't really seen from her since her 2018 album, um, Sweetener, which also did have some more sad songs in it, but it did bring out the sexual side of her a little bit, but Thank You Next was very very much in her feels. <laughs> Thank You Next revealed a grieving grande following the death of ex-boyfriend rapper Mac Miller, a broken engagement with SNL cast member Pete Davidson, and a deadly terrorist bombing at her Manchester concert. So she was going through a lot. Positions shows the complete opposite. Without a sad song in sight, this album is a positively filled banger. Though categorized under the pop genre on iTunes, a majority of the 14 tracks on Positions screams 90s R&B and funk. The eighth track, My Hair, which is one of my favorites, displays this refreshingly new, funky vibe of Grande's. It's easily one of the most captivating songs on the album, like Ariana outdid herself by using a major sounding tune over a minor chord progression, which creates this kind of like badass and flirtatious vibe. And Grande also brings her best vocal ability to the track, showing off her whistle tones for an entire chorus near the closing of the song. Like. I feel like I've been waiting for this moment for years. Ariana also uses a bunch of interesting musical elements that separate positions from your average bubblegum pop music, and these can be found on most songs on the album, like Off the Table gives us fast triplets over a slow, ballad-like tempo, and Shut Up incorporates a delightful chromatic instrumental phrase in the chorus, which I love to sing. <laughs> along to. Also uses more originality in this album, I feel like, rather than sampling tunes as she did in previous releases, like Seven Rings and Goodnight and Go, which I didn't know that Goodnight and Go is actually a sample from an Imogen Heap song called Goodnight and Go. Um, so that surprised me, and I, honestly, I've been kind of disappointed in the past by her, her gravitation towards pulling from other artists' tunes, but I really like how she just made this album completely her own, and I feel like her diction has also significantly improved in this album, which makes her lyrics easier to understand. Not completely there for me yet, but it's she's definitely come a long way. Overall, Positions seems like a game changer for Ariana Grande. She seems to be reinventing herself and healing from her past traumas. 34 plus 35 shows a really witty and humorous attitude. POV shows a commitment to journey of self-love and respect, which I love. And just like Magic shows an all-around confident woman, both in her work and her personal life. Just after facing so many hardships, this entire album shows both a shift in character and a musical style, which is an uplifting growth that we hope to see continue in the future. So I would say good job Ariana Grande on this new Positions album. Big shout out to Carmen for that wonderful review of Ariana Grande's Positions. And that is the end of our episode this week. Thank you so much for tuning in to Welcome Home this week. And we will catch you back here same time, same place next week. Happy holidays.